I've noticed that whenever uh, Pastor Arnett or Pastor Fowler get to speak, they, they have a, a certain passage that, they, that they're flowing from one to the next, like Pastor Fowler is doing First Peter, and uh, Pastor Arnett has been doing the Beatitudes, and uh, I don't really have any uh, text to flow from, so, so I just picked this text tonight because it's kind of what uh, God's been teaching me. And I, uh, I'm sure we can all relate to it. Um, so I'd just like to ask you tonight, uh, how do you handle a challenge? Do you run at it full force or do you cringe? Uh, if your boss gives you a project that you feel unequipped to handle, or maybe your teacher, if you're in school, maybe your teacher gives you an assignment that you feel is overwhelming, or maybe your parents expect a certain GPA out of you. Um, there's all kinds of things. Yeah, if you play sports, your coach might set a performance goal. Your coach might tell you to lose 10 pounds, right? Uh, or to gain 10 pounds. Or you might need to reach a certain benchmark of sit-ups or, or uh, speed in the 100-meter dash. Uh, there are all kinds of challenges that, that we can be given. Uh, I know for me, uh, my most recent, not most recent, but one of the hardest challenges I had recently was, was uh, the first year that I was supposed to lead the mission trip to Honduras. That was, to me, that felt overwhelming. That felt like, oh man, I got to do this. I got to organize this all by myself and make sure, you know, when, pa when, pa when Pastor Sean led the trip, it was awesome and, you know, everybody had a great experience and God really worked and now it's like, oh boy, now I have to kind of pull off the same thing. Um, but then, but then you do it. You meet the challenge. You achieve your goal. Uh, you achieve victory. How do you feel after that? That feels pretty good. And now, what do you expect from the person who challenged you? Do you expect a reward? Um, Maybe they, you were promised a certain incentive, right? Uh, you maybe expect your boss to give you a raise now, right? All right, let's try a different scenario. Um, <laughs> you've worked at a company for 20 years. And the new kid, uh, just out of college, comes in, and in six months, he's making more money than you. All right? Now how do you feel? Think about it, okay? And, uh, and we'll, go, we'll go to the text, and we'll come back to that question before the night is over. All right? Now, in tonight's text, uh, and in many places in the Bible, Jesus uses the illustration of his followers as being slaves. And he is the master. And tonight's text, it's one of those times. So we're going to go to Luke chapter 17. And we're going to read the first 10 verses in Luke chapter 17. And this is Jesus speaking. Luke 17, verse 1. And he said to his disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. 
And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink? He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Father, I ask uh, tonight that you would uh, be with me as I speak and try to clearly explain your word. Uh, I cannot do it without your spirit. Lord, I pray that your spirit would work in each heart tonight uh, and convict where conviction needs to be displayed and encouraged where people need to be encouraged. Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, in this text, Jesus gives three pieces of instruction. The first is the task. He assigns the task. The second is the tool. And the third is the tood or the attitude, if we want to. For the sake of alliteration, we got to do, you know, task, tool, tood. That's a, that's a good Baptist way of preaching. But anyway, um, Firstly, the task, verses 1 through 4. The first task that Jesus assigns is to avoid stumbling blocks. He talks about stumbling blocks and and how horrible it is for them to come. Uh, And so he's implying that we should avoid stumbling blocks. And what are stumbling blocks? Uh, In this text, it's anything that causes temptation. Anything that could cause you to be tempted to sin. And so what is that for you? What is that for me? Uh, what people are there around us that, that could be a stumbling block for us? Um, what, what things, what situations, what relationships, what movies, what music that we watch? What are any of these things that could be a stumbling block toward us, uh, for us, that, that we uh, need to be aware of? So that's the first task. The first task is avoid stumbling blocks. The second task is don't be a stumbling block. Don't cause anyone else to stumble. And what does this mean? This means like obvious sin, right? Things that, ways that God has commanded us, uh, things that he has commanded us to do and things that he has commanded us not to do, sins of commission, uh, things that we commit, sins of omission, things that we uh, should do but don't do, um, these are all ways that, that we can be stumbling blocks. Uh, and these are obvious, you know. Um, but, but there are less obvious ways that we can be a stumbling block to others. Uh, and some of these are, are through, and we're going to break it down into two ways tonight. One is through liberalism, and one is through legalism. Uh, and, and these are pretty obvious as well, although more subtle. Liberalism is where we get uh, justification of, of sin. This is where homosexuality comes in, and we try to say, oh, they were just born that way, right? 
Um, so we can't really judge them. We don't get to say anything bad about them. Uh, this is where abortion comes in. This is where we say, oh, it's, it's the woman's choice. It's her body. Uh, she can do with that child inside of her whatever she wants. And so in this way, uh, people, their mind, in their mind, they be, begin to justify uh, things that God has, has said are just completely wrong. But we come up with a way to make it sound okay. And so now we, those people who come up with these justifications, they become stumbling blocks. And they encourage people to sin. Uh, not only liberalism, but through legalism. Now, liberalism, you know, people start off and they, it's just like, well, do whatever you want. But in legalism, we take it so far the other way, right? We, we invent ways that, uh, that we try to make ourselves holy. We add on to the gospel, the gospel of righteousness where uh, that we are saved and made holy only through faith in Jesus Christ. But uh, people come along and, and back in the, in the Bible times, in New Testament times, it was, oh, yeah, you need to have faith, but uh, you also need to be circumcised. That's how you really get in tight with God. But we've, we've moved, uh, we've replaced that today with, with different things. We've replaced that with uh, you, you need to dress a certain way. When you come to church, you need to have on a certain uh, level of clothing. Otherwise, you're not really as holy. Which, again, has nothing to do with faith in Christ. No one's saying, you know, don't be modest. Of course, modesty is commanded. Uh, but clothing has nothing to do with our righteousness. Our righteousness is Christ. Um, and we, and we add all these kind of things. Uh, styles of music are, are holier than other styles of music. Um, but that isn't true. And, and so we weigh down uh, people, especially new believers. And in this text, it calls them little ones. And when we read this, we, we might automatically think, oh, that means children. That means little kids like Hannah and Jody. But, but that's not necessarily what it means. Got your attention, right? They're like, what? I heard my name. That's all I heard. Okay, uh, but it's, it doesn't necessarily mean little children. It means uh, anyone who is young in the faith, anyone who is immature, and we can, we can confuse them with liberalism or we can weigh them down with guilt and shame and, and extra things that, and adding to the gospel uh, that, that could discourage them. And so we need to be careful about being a stumbling block through the obvious ways, through blatant sin, or just through liberalism or legalism. These are ways that we need to not be a stumbling block. Because as Jesus says, it's a serious thing. This is a big deal. Uh, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck. And he were thrown into the sea. That's like mafia uh, dealings. Than he would to cause one of these little ones to stumble. And he says in verse 3, be on your guard. Other translations say, take heed to yourselves. In other words, he's saying, you know, don't think you could never do this, right? You need to watch yourself. We can, we can fall into a trap and say, I'm a pretty good person. You know, I'm not 
going to do anything to cause anyone to stumble. But who is Jesus talking to? He's talking to the disciples. He's saying, you need to watch yourself. And I think if the disciples needed to watch themselves, we need to do that too. Uh, we need, we don't, uh, to not get, not just not assume that we are uh, not causing anyone to stumble. We need to evaluate and watch ourselves. And now he goes into uh, more instructions. He says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. And I find it interesting that this comes right after he talks about stumbling blocks and taking heed to yourself regarding these stumbling blocks. And so it seems like uh, forgiveness was something that maybe the disciples struggled with. And in light of the context where he's talking about stumbling blocks, it seems like uh, not forgiving could be a way to cause other people to stumble. So how can lack of forgiveness cause other people to stumble? Well, it can cause the person who is not being forgiven, it can cause them to stumble because uh, they think they're right and so that's going to continue to breed hatred and anger and bitterness inside of them. Or if they have asked for forgiveness and you still refuse to forgive it, that can uh, increase their guilt and their shame because they already know they're wrong, but still this is being held against them. And so they're discouraged and it becomes a stumbling block toward them. Not only the person being forgiven, uh, not being forgiven, but, but people outside watching your relationships, especially unbelievers, uh, people watching you and concluding that you're a hypocrite because you talk about receiving forgiveness from God and you want forgiveness from God for your sins, but, but you won't give it to people who sin against you. And so they look at at the Christian's walk and say, you know, there's, there's no real difference. There's nothing uh, tangible. There's no real change happening there. So, so they walk away. They turn away uh, from the faith and they do not repent. And so Jesus is setting a very high standard here. Uh, a part of his task is to set a high standard. He says we need to forgive seven times if someone sins against you seven times in a day, right? Most of us, if someone does one thing really bad to us, we can hold that grudge for weeks and months and years. Jesus says, if someone does something to you seven times in a day, you should forgive them if they repent. Now, Jesus is not putting a limit. There's no cap on forgiveness. It's not... Oh, it's seven times and uh, I don't have to forgive you anymore. In the Bible, many of us know that the number seven is a symbol of perfection, of wholeness, of completeness. And so Jesus is saying when, when, when you forgive someone, forgive them completely. Forgive them fully. Release them. And it doesn't, there's no number limit on the number of times we should forgive. So this is the task. Avoid stumbling blocks. Avoid being a stumbling block. 
And, and one of those ways we avoid being a stumbling block is through how we forgive. And this was a huge challenge for the apostles. Verses 5 and 6. Now Jesus gives us the tool. The tool to accomplish the task. This is, first we have the response of the, the apostles. Verse 5, it says, The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. We don't like this teaching. It's too hard. We can't do it. You're asking too much of us. The only way we will be able to do what you're asking us to do is by a miracle. Increase our faith. Give us more faith. But what I find interesting is how Luke, the writer, how he addresses the people that Jesus is talking to. What does he call them? He calls them the apostles. The apostles asked for an increase in faith. But who were the apostles? I think it's interesting that the people who are reading this, especially at the time it was written, they get to, because many of the apostles were still alive when this was written. And so the readers, they get to see that, that they're great pillars of the faith. You know, the people that, that they listen to, that, that they obey, that they look up to, that they respect. At one point in their spiritual walk, they felt like they would not be able to live up to the life and the calling that Jesus had called them to. And for us, I think this is extremely encouraging. Because this is encouraging for those of us who, who are not perfect and have times of struggle. Anyone in this room? Okay? That is all of us. Unless you really are perfect, and then I don't want to be around you because I'll just be depressed. All right? Um, But at this point, the apostles felt like they couldn't handle it. But one day, they would be seen as the mighty apostles. So what is the lesson in this? I think the lesson is that we need to give ourselves some grace. We need to give others grace as we go through our process of sanctification uh, and become more like Christ. Because we can be so hard on ourselves and beat ourselves up and, and compare ourselves to other people who we might consider spiritual giants. People, someone who may have led us to the Lord or, or someone who we highly respect, an author, uh, someone on TV. We, we look at them and we compare ourselves to them and we can instantly feel defeated before we even start. Because the difference between where we are and where they are just seems so great. It seems like a canyon. There's like a grand canyon between us and where they are. But I think it's great that, that we get to look at the apostles who heard this teaching about forgiveness and said, we can't do it. They struggled with the high standards that Jesus has set. So, so don't feel special when you struggle with them as well, all right? They said, increase our faith. 
do you ever feel like this when it comes to a teaching in the word of God? So for the apostles, it's, it's forgiveness. You know, we don't want to forgive people seven times. We think three is a lot, okay? That's, that was the teaching back then. The Pharisees said, if you forgive three times, you're doing good. Jesus says, no, seven times a day. And in another place, he told Peter, what? Seventy times seven, okay? They didn't like this. But what is, what is your struggle? What teaching do you bump into and say, I, I can't do that? And you push back on it. It, it might be forgiveness for you. Someone may have done something to you recently or a long time ago and you can't let it go. It might be something else. Uh, in our discovery class, and this was, probably, this was a couple of years ago, we were going through First Peter and we came to the part in chapter 3 where it talks about wives submitting to their husbands um, in all quietness and, uh, you know, calling him Lord, as Sarah called Abraham Lord, and, uh, you know, not letting your, your beauty be, be just your outward adornment of jewelry and, and how you fix your hair, but let it be the imperishable qualities of the gentle and quiet spirit. And, and we had a couple of girls in that class, and they didn't like that. And so for like four hours, a couple of weeks, we, just, we discussed that those six or eight verses, just trying to convince them that, yes, you can do this, and this is what God says, and this is the way you should do it. Because they, they didn't, they're like, why do we have to be the ones to be quiet? The man is the one who is, you know, being obnoxious, right? Because the text is about uh, get, winning the husband who is an unbeliever through, through your submission. And they, they, just, they just couldn't get it. And they didn't like it. And they pushed back on it. And so we, we had a huge discussion about it. Submission might be uh, your challenge. Maybe it's the command to not retaliate when somebody says something to you. To not cuss someone out when you're wrong. Maybe it's how you handle your money how God commands you to deal with your money. Maybe it's being obedient to your parents. Maybe it's the things you watch, the music you listen to. It just seems to you that it's impossible to, to ever be able to do these things consistently. But Jesus has an answer. He has an answer to this cry for an increase of faith because we think we just can't do it. Because we think we just can't live up to his commands. This is Jesus' response in verse 6. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. And when I first read this, I thought, I thought he was spanking him a little bit. I thought he was like saying, if you think you can't do this, then you don't have any faith. But, but I, it's a little more gracious than that. Um, 
this is, this is another one of those faith passages where that, that people like to use to say that we can get whatever we want if our faith is strong enough. You know, you can walk up to a tree and tell it to move and it'll move just because you told it to, right? But the truth is that, that this passage actually says the opposite of that. Uh, Jesus is saying that Anything can be done no matter how small your faith is. Not if you believe hard enough or if your faith is really great, you can get whatever you want. Because it's the object of our faith, not our faith, right? We don't just trust in our own faith. I was watching Oprah the other day. Not on purpose, but like, and she had, she had this, the, the law of attraction people on and they were talking about if, the, you know, if you just want, if you want something, you just need to believe it and, and talk about it and, and decide that you want it and then you'll get it, right? And so basically it's up to you. And they talked about being co-creators with the universe to get what you want and I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't speak. I was just like, blasphemy, you know? But, but that's exactly what, what a lot of Christian preachers say uh, using these passages to say, you know, if you just have enough faith, if you believe hard enough, you can get whatever you want. But that's not what it is. It's the object of our faith because if we have faith in God, we have someone on our side who is all-powerful, who is all-knowing, who created everything, and therefore, he can do anything he chooses, and he's on our side. And through Jesus Christ, we have this God on our side who can, he can do anything for us that lines up with his will for us, okay? So he can do anything for us. He just doesn't have to do everything we want him to do for us. So this, this statement of Jesus actually, it destroys uh, the belief that many people teach today about healing, uh, that, that if you believe hard enough, God will heal you or that, you know, some people say, oh, well, you weren't healed because you didn't believe enough. You didn't have enough faith. This, this statement destroys that teaching because Jesus says we can take a mustard seed of faith and do great things with it. Uh, this destroys the teaching that someone is poor because they don't have enough faith in God. That you didn't get something. You didn't get your promotion at work. You didn't get that car that you need because you didn't believe enough. That if you give a certain amount of money to somebody on TV, that God has to do something for you because you gave in faith. No. According to Jesus, if you have any faith, 
Anything can be done, but it is done by the power and will of God, not your power and your will. So the true essence of what Jesus is saying is this. You don't need me to increase your faith. You just need to use the faith that you already have, no matter how small it is, because I can do a lot with a little. You don't need me to increase your faith. You just need to use the faith you already have. Because if you are a believer, you, you have faith. There is some faith there. So we have the task and the tool, and now Jesus is going to talk about our attitude. Our attitude as we exercise our faith. So Jesus is encouraging them and us to know that, that you can do anything he asks you to do. He's saying, yes, this might be a hard teaching, but you have faith, and with that little bit of faith, you can, you can do anything that I ask you to do. But now Jesus is going to go deeper and he's going to go into the heart of the matter. Like Pastor Arnett talked about this morning. Uh, it's, it's not just what we do, you know, that we obey, that we follow Jesus' commands. But the heart condition when we obey. Or in this case, Jesus is going to talk about after we obey. Or while we are obeying. Jesus uses the example of a master having a slave who has been working all day. The text says he, he's been out plowing or tending sheep. And, and it's hot, right? And I see these guys who are building the wall outside, and I see them working every day. And, and you know, uh, this, this past week we had VBS, and I would be here around quarter to eight every day. And, and they would already be there. And they would be working, and they would be digging. And, and I just said, I'm glad that's not me. Because <laughs> that's some hard work. But imagine you're doing that work all day, and then you go home, and you have someone else there. You, you have a boss who's at home and says, sorry, I know you've been working all day, but you need to make my dinner. You need, to, uh, you need to cook me dinner. You need to deal with my stuff first. Then, then you can deal with your stuff. All right? Our first instinct when we read about a master like this, a master who says, uh, <laughs> what does he say? He, he does not say, come immediately and sit down to eat. He says, uh, prepare something for me to eat. And, and clean yourself up, all right? Clean yourself up, make something for me to eat, and, and serve me while I eat, okay? So it's not just cook it and give it and then go eat. No, it's you wait on me hand and foot while I eat. Our first instinct when we think about a master like this is we cringe a little bit, don't we? Is this the kind of boss that we want to have he seems kind of mean right but but this is the example that Jesus is using 
And he, he speaks it to the disciples as, as if it's something they would accept. As if it's a part of the culture of that day. He says, he talks like, like which of you? Like, none of you would, right? This is an obvious thing. Like they, they understand the situation when a master owns a slave, he has all rights to that slave. And we see that, that Jesus applies this master-slave relationship between, to, to him and us as believers. He is our master and we are the slave. And so the slave, he's obedient. He does what he is asked to do. Even though he is hot and tired, and, and in most of, and just about any of our minds, he's gone beyond the call of duty. But not his master's. And then Jesus says, he tells the attitude that this slave should have. Says he, the master says, he does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Jesus says, don't have an attitude when you do the things you are commanded to do and in everyone else's mind it may seem like you have gone beyond the call of duty. Don't have an attitude that you are owed some measure of thanks or reward because you did what you were asked to do by your master. Now, this is hard. This is not going to be a popular teaching. Nobody's going to say, ooh, let me hear the one again about how I'm an unworthy slave. I like thinking of myself that way. We don't really like thinking like that, but this is what Jesus has said. Because today, there's an, there's an attractive, it's an attractive temptation to fall into the mindset that that we are owed a reward when we perform well. We are trained by the world to think this way. And so if we go back to the examples that we started with, uh, if you do your job well over a long period of time, you expect a raise. If you have been at the company for a long time or longer than anyone else, you expect to be the one to get the promotion, not the hotshot college kid, right? If you do well in school, you might expect to get a reward from your parents. Maybe a video game or a phone or a car. No cars for you, Jody? What do you want? You don't know. Okay. Clothes? No. She doesn't want anything. Money? <laughs> your mom says money. Ah. <laughs> uh. We are trained by this mindset. This is how we operate in the world. And so in many ways, we let it slip into our Christian mindset as well, into our Christian walk. Think about it. If you serve Jesus for a long time and you've been faithful, do you expect something back? You've taught Sunday school for 20 years. You've sung in the choir for 50 years. 
I don't know. You've been a good husband, a faithful husband, a faithful mom. You've taken good care of your kids. I wonder how many of us are serving Jesus, expecting that he will pay them back or that he owes them something for their service. To pay them back with things like obedient children or health, or financial success, or a relationship. And many times, we aren't even aware of these motives. It's all subconscious. It's all under the surface. Because we would never think of ourselves as being people with bad motives. But we go back to verse 3 where he says, be on your guard. Watch out. So it's, it's, it's all subconscious, but, but it comes to the surface when we feel like we've been serving for a long time, but the reward that we were expecting hasn't shown up yet. We haven't received our reward for our faithful service. And you know when this is happening because, because a hint of bitterness starts to show up in your service you start to question God and his goodness. You start to feel like, you start to wonder if serving him is really worth it. What am I really getting out of this anyway? And when you start asking those kinds of questions, you need to examine your motives and your expectations. Are they in line with a slave or are they more in line with an employee? Do we think we work and then God owes us? Or do we just do what we are commanded? Like the slave that, that Jesus alludes to in the text. Again, I know this is hard. I, I don't like this teaching. <laughs> um, this is challenging for me. Because I know many times my own motives aren't the greatest. Um, sometimes I serve just because it's my job. Or because I'll do something a certain way because that's the way I was trained to do it. And motives don't necessarily, you know, come to the forefront. Or, or sometimes I serve with this secret expectation that, that God's going to pay me back somehow. Um, God will reward me if I do this well and then the reward becomes the motive and not the master um, so what do we do how do we get out of this uh, God owes me mentality that can slip in I think the first thing we need to do is, is confess is just be honest just admit it as you evaluate yourself, think, you know, what if God took away something from me? Would I get bitter? Would I feel like, wait, no, I was faithful, and you took that away. Or I've been faithful, and you haven't given it to me yet. Confess that, 
admit that your motives haven't been pure, but also tell them that you want to change. I think the second thing we need to do is, is we need to understand our role as a slave. And this will take an adjustment period. Uh, we need to die to ourself. We need to understand that we are slaves. Why are we slaves? Because, because we were slaves to sin. You're a slave either way. Either you're a slave to sin or a slave to what? Righteousness, right? And the only way we become a slave to righteousness is through Jesus' perfect sacrifice. He bought us. He purchased us. He lived the perfect life that we could not live. And through him, we gain righteousness and holiness and acceptance and good standing with God through nothing we do. And so anything that we have from God is because of him. He has all rights to us now because he died for us and rose again. He owes us nothing. And he has already been supremely gracious in saving us. He loved us when we were unlovely. And now anything else we receive is also by his grace. Any reward we do receive is by his free choice of grace, not because he owes it to us, but because he is good, because he is gracious. Not because we can look at him and say, see what I did? Now you owe me this. And again, it's never that blatant. It's always subconscious. Subtle. There you go. That's a good word. God is still good. He does still give rewards. That's not what this text is teaching. This text is not teaching that God doesn't reward us. Because he does. The point is that we don't get to look at him and say, you owe this to me. I demand this of you. And I think this is a more appropriate use of the phrase, God is no man's debtor. We, we don't get to look at God and say, God, you owe me a debt. There's a debt you owe me. Because he has given up everything for us. And now we should do whatever he commands us. And remember, nobody said this would be easy. Because the apostles didn't like this. Remember, we go back and, and find out that, that the great apostles felt it would take something supernatural for them to be able to, to obey Jesus' commands. So we should not become a Christian or live the Christian life merely for what we can get out of it. And the final thing uh, to, that I want to talk about tonight is when it gets hard and, and you feel like you're struggling more than you can bear, uh, remember Hebrews 12, verse 13. I think this is a good verse. It says, it says, For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. 
And the word consider there, it actually means, it means to think about, consider, consider and compare. This is one time where we do compare. We compare ourselves to Jesus and we compare uh, the struggles that he went to, that he went through and, and the purposes for, that he went through it for. In the passage it says he did it for the joy set before him. And when we compare our struggles to Jesus' struggles, uh, we know that, that he kept going and that he finished the race that he was given to run. And this verse says that when we meditate on that and understand it, then we will be encouraged and we will be refreshed and strengthened. So let's do that tonight. Let's, let's evaluate our motives Let's confess any selfish motivations or any bitterness that, that may have developed in our hearts because we've wanted something or we had something and it was taken away. And let's remember that, that our master is a good master who will always provide what we need even though we're struggling to obey his commands. And let's remember that God can take the smallest amount of faith and do great things with it, even though we may feel inadequate for the task. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight. Uh, Lord, this, this, can feel cha- this challenge can feel overwhelming for us. Lord, you, you encourage your apostles to say that you could take the smallest amount of faith and, and do great things with it. Lord, we need that encouragement tonight to know that it is by your power. Lord, forgive us for, for putting demands on you, for thinking that we are, we are worthy of merit through our own good works. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ and and his merit and his righteousness and his perfect life. Lord, I pray tonight for anyone who who may be struggling, who may be fighting the bitterness, who may be fighting, having expectations. Lord, I pray that you would encourage them. Uh, They may have been serving for a long time and, and maybe... Uh, motives got mixed up along the way. They started out well, but but things changed and things got hard and, and then motives changed. Lord, I pray that you would encourage them and all of us. Lord, I pray tonight for anyone who doesn't know you, who does not have even that mustard seed of faith. Father, I pray that you would uh, encourage them, help them to know that that is only when you are on their side, when, when they have faith in Jesus Christ and his perfect sacrifice, that they have access to you and that they can know you. Lord, help us tonight, keep us safe this week, and bring us back to worship you on Sunday. In Jesus' name, amen.